Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we have the privilege of talking about health system redesign and value-based primary care in osteoarthritis. Now, have you ever been along to a health professional and being guided towards a treatment that you wondered whether this was the best option for you? Ever been told that you need an expensive imaging study done or an invasive procedure and ask the same question of yourself? Although research has consistently demonstrated what is required to manage osteoarthritis appropriately, this is not the reality experienced by most. The current treatment for osteoarthritis is often reactive, commonly using treatments which are neither beneficial and often harmful and expensive to patients. The limitations in the current health system call for new models of osteoarthritis care to support ongoing symptom relief and self-management that are proactive and preventative. Re-engineering our healthcare system may be facilitated by considering how health professionals are paid. At present, this is based on activity with little heed paid to quality or outcome. On this episode of Joint Action, we are joined by Kevin Cheng to discuss health system redesign and value-based primary care in osteoarthritis. Dr. Kevin Cheng is an Australian-trained general practitioner specializing in chronic disease management and integrated care. He trained at the University of Western Australia, has a fellowship with the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and an MBA from France. 
He has interests in lifestyle medicine, health system reform, and data analytics in healthcare. Kevin has over 20 years experience as a doctor working in urban and rural areas in Australia, plus sabbaticals in Kenya, Hong Kong, and England as a clinician and in health policy. He's developed innovative programs for governments, health insurers, hospitals, and pharmaceutical companies. He's an industry expert in models of healthcare, population health management, and chronic disease care. Kevin also worked for strategy consulting firms, McKinsey and Company, and Boston Consulting Group, leading business transformations in the public sector and private industries, such as retail banking, manufacturing, mining, education, and technology. He's also the founder of Asana, a general practice corporate. Hi, Kevin, and welcome to the show. Thank you, David, for having me. Oh, no, it's absolutely a pleasure and really happy to have an opportunity to have the conversation. Now, first thing I'd like to do is to get to know you a little bit better. It's also for the listeners, not just for myself. But can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like for you? Sure. So I'm an Australian trained GP by trade. I spent 10, 15 years in the business world, uh, working with large organizations on strategy and operations. And in the last five to 10 years, focused on health policy and new programs uh, in the healthcare system. A typical day for me, I, I run a medical service. I get up and do exercise, uh, answer emails. I spend the morning uh, as thinking time, doing a lot of planning. Around lunchtime, I often have meetings and catch up with my team. In the afternoon, I work on one or two big decisions or big problems. And then after that, I spend time with my young family. Superb. And have you always structured your day like that with regards, I guess, the more cognitive time in the morning? I've always worked out that I work better in the morning. So I, I get sluggish during the day and it's maybe I just bounce around from different topics and that makes me less effective. So uh, I, I remember back to uh, even high school days, I did better in morning exams than afternoon exams. So I've always left the important things to the morning. Yeah. And have you always tried to tailor your job towards something that provides more variety as well? Yeah, career-wise, I've always followed topics that interested me, projects that were, I guess, important from a learning or from a social impact point of view. So that's largely how I ended up in, in health policy. Excellent. Now, obviously, you've got a young family. It sounds like you have interests outside of your work. What do you enjoy doing when you're, when you're not at your desk? So currently we are in lockdown, so that's a lot of family time at home. We're privileged to live near bush, so we do a lot of bush walks. And when we're out of lockdown, I have an unusual hobby, which is to play snooker. Do you have a table at home? No, we're thinking about it. We just need to extend our, get an extra games room, I think. So, so where, where do you avail yourself of that hobby when you're not in lockdown? They're often different clubs, community clubs, uh, even RSLs. It's a hobby that I picked up when I was in high school and actually competed for a couple of years. Ah, well, back in the days when it was televised, probably broadly, is that right? Yeah, it, it has a, a long history in, in Australia, billiards. We've had a couple of world champions and I think in the 80s and 90s, it really had its heyday. And then it's probably um, lost now with the current generation. Yeah, well, 
it's a great activity and i think something that most people should be able to undertake too right it's quite social yeah that's right yeah 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 now kevin if you had to describe yourself in five words what would they be well food comes to mind i have a family who whose history is in restaurants i'm a father friendly funny and because they all start with F, I thought the last one could be forest bathing, which is essentially just being outdoors. Superb. Great descriptions. Now, the main content of today is obviously talking about osteoarthritis, uh, health system redesign and, and value-based primary care as it relates to, to osteoarthritis. But I thought it would be helpful to just set a little bit of context, particularly around how osteoarthritis interacts with the healthcare system, how much it costs. And, you know, as someone who works in the primary care space, Kevin, looking at osteoarthritis as a as an exemplar non-communicable disease, of which, you know, there are any number, whether that be diabetes, heart disease, or whatever it might be, which are all increasing in their burden. But with regards to the current healthcare system, just give me a sense, a rough sense of I guess the magnitude of costs as it relates to some of those different conditions in terms of direct healthcare costs, if you, if you might? I'm going to have a guess. I don't know the exact figures. But healthcare generally, in my time looking at different health systems and working in them, Australia and abroad, health systems are costing more and more as, as the population grows, as we have new technology, as there's an ageing population as well. I think one of the analyses I did many years ago was looking at the growth of healthcare costs. Uh, in fact, uh, in all OECD countries, the growth of healthcare actually grows faster than how gross domestic product or how much a country actually evolves its produce over time. Uh, in fact, healthcare has grown about 1% or 2% faster than GDP growth every year since wartime, since World War II. So that's at a, at a macro level. And then certainly the chronic health conditions that you talk about are the ones that are for a large part driving a lot of that cost. And I know that the top five conditions that really impact an aging population do include osteoarthritis, you know, diabetes, cancer, heart disease. And a lot of this can be preventable or at least addressable in its early stages to delay unnecessary treatment, which is what I'm passionate about. Yeah, and it's a great area to be passionate about. And really just to expand a little bit on what Kevin's just saying there, I mean, from the viewpoint of healthcare as a cost, when we're thinking about the gross domestic product, it's often quantified in terms of the percent of the GDP. In most developed nations, it's about 10% of the gross domestic product. I think in Australia at last count, I think it was about 9.4%. In the US, it's slightly larger. I think it's about 19% or thereabouts. Right. And, you know, as Kevin's just mentioned, a lot of the what we call chronic non-communicable diseases are increasing in their prevalence, increasing in their burden, and they're really costly to the healthcare system. I mean, they take up the vast magnitude of that cost of healthcare, of which osteoarthritis is one. At last count, and this goes back a number of years, the direct cost of osteoarthritis was about $5 billion annually to the Australian health economy. And when I say direct costs, I'm talking about costs such as joint replacement, recovery from joint replacement, uh, medications, physiotherapy, and so on. The indirect costs, which are costs related to unemployment and underemployment and disability and absenteeism from the workforce and reduction in tax and so on, is usually a factor of six times that. So it's usually in the order of 25 to $30 billion per year in Australia. So 
you know, other countries with larger populations, it's likely to be um, much, much larger, but it just gives you a sense of the, the magnitude of that cost. But obviously today we're, we're focused on osteoarthritis and particularly as it relates to our existing healthcare system. And when we think about costs in the healthcare system, Kevin, most of the costs relates to what we call a fee-for-service system. Can you just give me a sense of what that means? Well, by the way, the 25 to $30 billion is a huge amount. I recently looked at the healthcare costs of managing COVID in Australia, which was about the same amount. So osteoarthritis would be like dealing with a pandemic every year in our, in our system. So fee-for-service is a fee for a service that is provided by someone in the health system. I'm a GP, which is a family physician in other countries. And when I provide a consultation or a service, I get paid or reimbursed for that service. For other providers, such as a hospital, fee-for-service would be defined as getting paid for managing an emergency presentation or having a patient in an inpatient hospital bed for a period of days. So it's an activity that drives a particular payment. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Is there any account within that fee for the quality of your service, for the outcome of the service? It's a great question, David. (laughs) Often there isn't. The health system is slowly turning and following many examples abroad where there is some indexation to the outcomes that can be achieved from that activity. But for the most part, it's still a very minor component. I would say 95% of funding in the healthcare system, when we look at it at a macro level, is fixed to the volume, the volume of activity that we provide. And maybe up to 5% is actually linked to the outcomes or the population effects that we achieve for certain services that we provide. Uh, Which means at the bottom, bottom line, we might do a lot of things, it may not make patients better. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a tremendous explanation. And as you just suggested, it's driven by activity, not necessarily by outcome nor quality. So what, what are the potential consequences of having a healthcare system payment structure such that you pay for activity and not necessarily quality or outcome? When you pay a certain amount for an output, There is a natural incentive as providers or as human beings to maximize the incentives that you get for that particular output. So to boil it down, that would mean a tendency to increase volume, to go faster, and that may not be beneficial for the patients under our care. Yeah. And I guess just to expand on that, are there other consequences with regards to the types of service that get provided in terms of their complexity and cost? There is. So uh, depending on the relative levels of payment for those outputs, if, for example, if procedures attract a higher fee compared to perhaps more conservative services, such as a physio session compared to a joint replacement, which would be a procedure, then there'll be a natural incentive to potentially, as providers who receive that payment, to increase the volume of those services that attract a higher fee. So one is there is an incentive to go faster, which could mean for patients less time with your doctor, with your health service and and feeling rushed. And there may be a slightly wrong incentive to focus on those activities that are the highest paid. Yeah. And my next comment, really just following on from what Kevin's saying, is not to suggest that 
all of what I'm about to list is entirely inappropriate management when it comes to osteoarthritis. But there are some, I guess, high level examples of what Kevin's just talking about with regards items that we would consider inappropriate in most circumstances, not all circumstances, but inappropriate in most circumstances. And there I'm particularly thinking about the unfortunate expansion of increased diagnostic tests, particularly the use of MRI to make a diagnosis that we know is largely clinical, but it's obviously incredibly expensive and generates uh, remuneration for radiologists. In addition, we know that arthroscopy in the context of knee osteoarthritis doesn't provide a benefit, but again, remunerates quite well for those people that are redeeming a benefit from it. And so from the thinking about issues as it relates to low value care, there are a number of good examples in the osteoarthritis space. Is there a, an opportunity for us to shift from low value and what might that look like here, Kevin? So high value care in, in my simple terms would be getting better bang for buck, which is how can we provide services that really help patients and their families improve on their health? So in osteoarthritis, it could be the right mix of services at that stage of the disease process to keep someone as functional, free from pain and enjoying a good quality of life before unnecessary medications, unnecessary procedures in an expensive um, hospital setting. If we think about some of the examples that you just provided, they sit in the 95% category, which is a payment for a particular activity. And then there, there is a minority share, which may link to the outcome for patients. And I think one way to get from low value care to higher value care is to increase the percentage that is linked to health outcomes. So paying for services that work, not necessarily just paying for services with no focus on the result. Yeah, and so obviously that potentially may shift and redirect some of the precious healthcare resource away from you know, expensive investigations, much more invasive procedural type allocations towards resources that potentially are not necessarily reimbursed as healthily in the current system such as exercise, uh, diet, uh, educational offerings, and, and the like. And targeting those payments, as you suggested, towards the outcome of a population or an individual. How would that work? There are two great ways to get better bang for buck, to orient towards higher value care. The first is at an individual level, if we can understand the risk factors and the specific issues that really drive symptoms, the progression of that disease process, we can target those risk factors with the right services that deliver the best outcome. What comes to mind in other disease processes include, in, I've run a diabetes program where peer support is incredibly powerful. One of my favorite studies is having an intervention group of paying doctors and GPs like myself to focus on medications, to diagnose diabetes and review it more frequently. Second intervention group of paying patients to eat well and follow nutrition uh, guidelines and exercise, uh, pay attention to their health. And the third group, which has the best results compared to control is just peer support. Having a patient mentor, someone who's gone through a, a transformation in the management of their diabetes, for example, and achieved a better outcome. And having that peer support is superior to you know, financial payment. Another example in emphysema or chronic obstructive 
uh, lung disease where pulmonary physiology, so breathing up and exercises to maximise lung function is superior to a lot of the medications that we may use. I think the number needed to treat for chest physio is about four to keep one person from being admitted to hospital with a chest infection, um, whereas the number needed to treat for Spiriva, one of the common uh, medications that we do use for uh, emphysema, is about 16. And yet most Australians with emphysema are on Spiriva, and very few of them actually get chest physio. So for me, at an individual level, it's understanding what works and applying that to the individual risk factors. At a population level, which is the other way that we like to think as GPs, is how can we tailor different services to different groups of patients that we look after. For some, they may need more medical intervention. So we use data to track and highlight those patients for support. For others, it may be social support. We understand that the social determinants of uh, health are so important. What happens at home, at work, during pandemic in lockdown, for example, has a lot of impact and influence over your health status. So how can we help someone in their family at home to enable that social network and reduce those health risks day to day? And, and the third is how can we look at use data to use different interventions that may not be traditionally medical in nature? So lifestyle interventions, coaching and motivation, a lot of these other ideas are now very applicable to, to healthcare, but at a, at a population level. That's a tremendous explanation and obviously I think very helpful to, to break it down both at the individual and population level. And I think a lot of immediate examples that I can imagine would be translated to the osteoarthritis space, both from the examples that you provided at the individual level, but also applicable mm -hmm. at the population level. Now, obviously medicine and healthcare are often very resistant to change. How do we get the health system to be I guess, re-engineered, redesigned, redeployed in a way that might be more thoughtful about outcomes and quality than it is about activity? That's a great question and a challenging one to, to answer. I've met amazing clinicians during my 20 years as, as a GP here as well as abroad that have pioneered new health services, new programs, and really changed the way we think about healthcare. And there is a big movement from uh, low value care towards high value care in a lot of health systems uh, abroad. So there's a great uh, opportunity to, to do this in, in Australia as, as well. The first is to use results to demonstrate that there is better bang for buck, there is higher value in certain services over other services. I think finding a coalition of strong leaders in the health systems, there could be politicians, there could be clinicians, there could be consumer patient representatives, but we do need uh, good leadership to push against the grain and do something that actually works for our community over the longer term. The health system can be very uh, short-term. There are short-term political cycles. Even the tenure of uh, executives and CEOs may be shorter than the payoff period that is required for good preventative care. So we do need uh, strong leadership as well. We also need funding we need uh, innovation and ideas because, as you say, the health system is very slow to move. It's like turning a big Titanic ship, if you like, and there's a lot of inertia in the system, lots of rules and regulations, a lot of vested interests. But seeing successful examples abroad, we can feel heartened that there is uh, likely to be a big change coming 
which is a focus on better health. And I think the pandemic has put even a bigger spotlight on, on health and wellbeing. Yeah, no, a tremendous answer for a very complex question. And I probably put you on the spot completely unfairly by targeting you with that. And I'm going to do the same again, if that's okay. And you might have thought about this. And if you haven't, I apologize. But, you know, obviously, when we think about allocation of that precious healthcare resource, one of the things we do think about quite a lot is the health economic aspects of that. If we were to redesign the system and redraft it in accordance with what you're suggesting, targeted towards outcomes, quality and higher value care, what likely economic benefits are there from that? Is it going to cost us more? Is it going to cost us less? What what are the economic benefits here? There's a lot of research uh, in this space, uh, so I can defer to that, thankfully. The magic number is approximately 30%. There's a 30% opportunity to improve clinical care. So these are gaps in care where what we should be doing is often guided by publicly available guidelines and research, but it doesn't always happen. There's about a 30% opportunity to reduce care in the most expensive part of our health system, which is with procedures and in hospitals. And there's a 30% opportunity to improve the engagement and activation of patients and their families on their health which talks to health literacy, knowing what to do about chronic health conditions, being able to self-manage at home with the tools that are available, perhaps online tools and telehealth these days, and knowing where to go for help when you do feel unwell and get get stuck. So generally 30% opportunity to improve clinical results, to reduce unnecessary hospital expensive procedures, and 30% opportunity to empower patients to actually drive their health towards a better outcome. Superb. Uh, So there's lots and lots of opportunity there. What do you think the most critical next steps are? I know you're very involved in working in this space and a lot of the care you deliver at Asana is aligned with what you're saying. What do you think are the most critical initial next steps for us to take? One, we should find the pockets of excellence that already exist in our health system. Um, We do have a tendency towards talking and discussing a lot of ideas not necessarily translating them into system change. We also are prone to trialing a lot of pilots and some people call it pilotitis where we're paralyzed with lots of trials, but that again, don't turn into systematic, permanent, long-term change. So it's finding the pockets of excellence, finding the right leaders, aligning the, the right incentives, the funding mechanisms to enable that to happen. And then building a coalition of support in local communities from patients and their families, local organisations, the medical and healthcare industry to actually say, this is the right answer. If it's not arthroscopy to actually reduce symptoms, then it could be the conservative treatment with physio, pain management and weight loss and education that will actually reduce that number of osteoarthritis patients, that 30% target, you know, to not need procedures now uh, or potentially delay it later in life. So I think a mix of factors that's required for a health system change. Excellent. Now, I guess just wrapping up that particular topic, anything else that you want to say on that theme or any resources that you'd like to point people towards that might be helpful? Good question. We are seeing a lot of resources for patients online, which is, which is great. So everything from wellness apps, new health tech startups that are really empowering patients and their families to, to look at every aspect of their health. We produce a podcast, we have articles and videos on on preventative health, and I would just encourage 
all listeners to to see what's out there and download, try different apps, use online resources. The world is changing and healthcare is starting to change with it, which is great for patients. But taking that first step is is so important, which is applicable, I guess, to any behaviour change. Yeah, no, that first step, as you say, is incredibly important. And hopefully they set out on that journey with the appropriate advice and support to, to make that happen. Now, the next segment of the recording is really just, again, trying to get to know you, know, you and get inside your head a little bit, Kevin, if that's okay. We're going to do a quick rapid fire round. So favorite book? Sophie's World. Favorite movie? Horace Gump. Dog or cat person? We have a dog, so I probably should say dog for the kid's sake. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful animals. Come on. Favorite quote? That's a hard one. I'm going to come back to that one. Okay. What's your favorite food? I like... Do you have a bad habit? It's probably a human trait. I'm very impatient and sometimes I catch myself not waiting to see good results. (laughs) I think we're a lot like that. Where would you next like to go on holiday, COVID aside? So I've, I've studied in France and I love to take my kids there. So that's probably our next holiday destination when we can. What superpower would you have, if any? If I can wave a wand and have everyone being able to look at good data in order to make decisions about their health, that would be it. I'm right there with you. I think if we could have things that were based on merit as opposed to perspective and opinion, I think it would be incredibly powerful. Uh, if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, these would be influential leaders, maybe Nelson Mandela. What would you do if money weren't an issue? I would flip the switch and make 95% of health funding results-based rather than activity-based. Great answer. Good to see. Good to see alignment with what we've been talking about. Now, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? Well, like everyone, I've been listening to podcasts, your podcasts and and others, and I listen to preventative health, but also how to run businesses and startups in my role. And I read uh, a lot of books. I actually have a, a business coach. I generally get about two or three book recommendations every time I catch up with him and uh, I don't get through them all. So I've got a big stack of books to, to get through. Sounds like a great opportunity for spending time reflecting. And presumably if it's a business coach, a lot of it's aligned with areas of interest to both your business coach and yourself. Indeed. One of the big learnings is when you build your own business, it's very much an extension and reflection of what you want in life. The the values that we put into our business is essentially the values that I hold dear to um, our family. And so it, it's there's almost complete alignment. Superb. Now, the big question, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? It may be embedded in the response you just gave me, but it may not be. Well, the short answer, and there's probably a longer slightly more truthful answer. So I'll give you both. (laughs) The short answer is I get to help a lot of people and I get to work with an amazing team that helps communities be, be healthy and happy. The longer answer is it's been a process of discovery and probably elimination. I started off as being a doctor and I thought I could do more by problem solving at a population level. So then I went to learn skills to do that in business and at at a business school. I worked in lots of other industries where I learned a lot of skills and developed some experience in running large teams and organizations. And I've had the privilege to apply those skills back into healthcare to help health insurers, health departments um, in in different countries actually 
uh, improve the health service. And what I'm doing now is very much running my own venture to apply some of those ideas in order to help the local communities that we're working in. Excellent. Now, just because it's of great interest to me, you've obviously started with a focus at the individual level and then went more macro. It seems like you've probably come back to a blend of the two, but which of those have you found most fulfilling, meaningful and impactful, whether, whether working at the individual or the macro level or whether you find the blend is the optimal, optimal point? It's a great question. In my business time, we did a lot of high-level strategy, work in boardrooms, did a lot of analysis behind the scenes. And sometimes those strategies wouldn't always translate to a change in the organization, a change in the, in the industry. And it made me think about, well, is that symptom of how health policies sometimes work and sometimes don't work? Um, at an individual level, it felt like you had to do a lot. It was very labor intensive you had to say the same thing over and over and you had to convince every person one by one in order to get to that population health outcome uh, what i feel passionate about now is doing things at a grassroots level where we can work on the ground uh, with patients and their families we get the, the live feedback on what's not working what's working and we try to focus more on the things that are working but also be able to work across the system so that we do research, we can share ideas and innovations with hospitals, with health insurers, with government in order to affect those health policies that can. So using kind of a grassroots idea generation process, if you like, testing and refining almost in a startup type mode in order to get a good answer and then be able to share that good answer with others so that we can help more folks in a similar way. Yeah, no, it's of tremendous interest to me and Obviously, you've refined your focus as you've journeyed through your professional life, and I, I wish you well with it. And Thank you. the reason for my asking the question is I'm very much at that nexus myself trying to work out how best to influence patients and health, whether that be at an individual or, or population level or, or do both. Now, just in, in closing, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Work on your health. Full stop. Now. Full stop. Right. It's just very timely. I, I, I'm all about action. And the pandemic has really highlighted this opportunity to look at what happens in your life at home on a day-to-day -day basis. There's such a big focus on that. We know that there's probably a cohort looking after themselves, but there's also a cohort that you know, are suffering from lockdown, mental health. We know chronic diseases, if we're not managing them well, if touch wood, that person gets COVID or the flu or other you know, infections, they may be the ones that end up in hospital. So I'm very passionate and focused on helping people in their health. It's a great passion and something I thoroughly applaud. And as you say, I think we've learned a lot from COVID and, you know, obviously it's not been entirely pleasant, but I think it's provided a lot of opportunity for reflection on what's valuable. Again, in closing, is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people out there who have osteoarthritis? Seek the right advice and consider that advice with all the options that can help you with how to live with osteoarthritis at home. There's often not a, a, a silver bullet and it could be a mix of different supports from the healthcare system, but also things that you can do at home because we know that a lot of the 
the burden, the, the challenges of living with osteoarthritis can be either preventable or manageable. Great way to close. Now, Kevin, thank you so much. It was really, really enjoyable having a chance to chat to you about something that you're so passionate and knowledgeable about and really appreciate your sharing those insights and thoughts and taking the time to chat with us. It's really appreciated. It's been a real pleasure, David. Thank you as well. And thank you for all your advice over over the years and your leadership in, in osteoarthritis. I'm very much following your leadership and then we're we're going to make a big difference, hopefully, as Australia's population ages and we see more of the condition. I hope so. And all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very much hoping that you enjoyed the conversation today. As we tried to expound the cost of healthcare and the cost of osteoarthritis within that to healthcare is substantial. Unfortunately, the way our current healthcare system is structured is that it's basically a fee-for-service or an activity-based funding model, meaning you get paid for activity, not necessarily quality nor outcomes. The consequence of that is that oftentimes we're delivering activity that's not necessarily mindful of outcomes, but it may be more targeted towards remuneration. And there I'm particularly thinking about some expensive low-value care items. And in the show we highlighted MRI and knee arthroscopy for osteoarthritis as two of those examples, but there are many, many more. There is an opportunity for us to shift from that low value to higher value care using payment system reform as a lever to ensure that that can happen. By virtue of doing that and paying according to outcome and quality rather than just activity, there are opportunities for us to redesign that system. And there'll be massive benefits to the community in terms of outcomes, as well as economic benefits to those people that are supporting the health system economy. Really hoping you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you again so much for listening to it. Would appreciate your rating the show and providing some feedback. It's really informative for us. And I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Do take care. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 